This is The Guardian. It's April 2010 and a man named Colin Singer is about to make a routine visit to Hakea Prison, a maximum security jail in Perth. The visit is routine because Colin's an independent prison visitor for the West Australian Office of Custodial Services. The purpose of an independent visitor is to visit prisons and detention centres, speak with inmates and staff, advocate for inmates and report on what we find within the facility in general and specific with the individual prisoners. It's a volunteer role. Colin visits Hakea Prison every few months, but on this day... From the moment he enters the facility, Colin is made aware that something is wrong. When you go to a prison and you're met at the front door by the superintendent, deputy superintendent, chaplain, and they say something to the effect, yes, sir, we think we have a problem, then you certainly have a problem. I entered Hakea Prison uh, and then was ushered across uh, to the medical centre where I met with the medical director. I remember to this day, he had a list of uh, incoming Indonesian fishermen for initial medical assessment. And he had began to go through the list. Colin watches as the prison's medical director points out certain names on the prison registry. And then the names were began to be highlighted in yellow and scribbled across the side saying, they are kids. Some of the prisoners, he told him, were children. I queried this with the doctor and I said, well, how do you know they're underage? He said, uh, Mr. Singer, some of them are prepubescent. How can they possibly be 19 years old? If Colin had any further doubts that the doctor was mistaken, putting a face to the name certainly expelled those doubts. To this day, the image will never leave me of this poor, tiny child, I mean tiny, hanging onto this barbed wire fence. And when I went up to him, he just burst into hysterics, just truly petrified. And I said, how old are you? And he said, I'm only 13. As the day went on, he would meet and talk to several children. The older Indonesians were really angry and they said, these are children. We told the Australian Federal Police they were children. I, like an idiot, thought that everything would be resolved the next day. Twelve years later, how much further forward are we? I'm Laura Murphy-Oates, and this is The Full Story. As Colin would later discover, around this time, Australia wrongly jailed dozens of Indonesian children in maximum security prisons as adult people smugglers. On Tuesday, the WA Court of Appeal overturned the convictions of some of these children and found that a substantial miscarriage of justice has occurred. In this special episode of Full Story, Guardian reporter Christopher Norse explores new details of this case, unearthed in a Guardian investigation, about the lengths Australia went to to detain these children and why it's taken 12 years to have their appeal heard. Today, how Australia wrongly imprisoned Indonesian children as adults. It's Thursday, the 28th of April.
Chris, you've been working on this investigation for months and speaking to Colin Singer and others after his visit to Hakea Prison in 2010, where he alleges that he discovered children in an adult prison. What did Colin do next? So after meeting the boys, Colin went on to become their official liaison. So he would meet with them regularly, always in groups. I would be advised who needed medical, dental care and what individual or group concerns or issues there were. Along with helping them with their immediate concerns, he came to learn how these children had ended up in prison. The situation was almost always the same for each of the kids. They were pretty much all from small, isolated fishing villages. Most of these children had come from impoverished, remote fishing villages in Indonesia. From a young age, they had worked on boats, cleaning them, cooking a bit here and there, mainly packing noodles, helping with the fish, gutting and cleaning them, etc. A lot of them found themselves being lured into the work and were told they'd be carrying cargo or goods, all for the promise of really appealing sums of money. I believe they were trafficked more than anything else. They all believed they were not going to do anything different to what they normally had done. They were never told that they were to be carrying passengers bound for Australia. They haven't a clue where Australia is, never hit Christmas Island. They would all eventually be intercepted at sea by the Australian Navy and they'd be convicted as people smugglers and jailed in maximum security prisons as adults. They all thought they would be back home before dark or the next day None of them thought they would be doing anything wrong and end up spending years in prison. They are still traumatised by the experience. So Colin watched their cases as they wound their way through the courts. He advocated for their release. He raised their, their cases publicly and privately. And one kid in particular who was helped was a 17-year-old boy by the name of Vandy. Tell me about Vandy. Who is he? So Vandy is from the island of Bononco in Indonesia. Um, it's a really impoverished part of the country. His family are quite poor. He has really limited access to education. And at the time, Vandy was working with his dad, either farming or fishing. So Vandy says he was promised 5 million rupiah to work on this boat, which is around about 585 Australian dollars. I was totally financially broke when somebody asked me if I was interested in working on a boat. So for Vandy, being on this boat is really enticing prospect. That amount of money could have transformed his family's circumstances. So he says he took the job because basically he wasn't earning any money any other way and he had to look after his younger siblings, but he would never be paid. He did not specify what I was expected to do or where the boat was sailing to. Like many of the boys that make up this story, We've been unable to contact Fandy directly to speak with him. So the voice that you're hearing on this podcast isn't Fandy's. It's the voice of a voice actor who we've hired to portray him. Throughout this episode, that actor will be reading from documents that were tendered to the WA Supreme Court during his appeal against his conviction. This particular account is from Fandy's Department of Immigration and Citizenship Entry interview from the 29th of September 2009. So this is basically a document that you're made to fill out when you're arrested at sea. In it, Vandy tells us the story of how he, as a 17-year-old, ended up on that boat that eventually landed him in Australia. One day, after meeting this man and agreeing to work for him, I boarded a boat which took me from Binonko to the island of Sumbawa. 
So Vandy is told that he's going to another island in Indonesia called Sumbawa, although that would turn out to be a lie. We didn't land in Sumbawa, but were taken to the boat which brought us to Australia. I don't know this man's name. I left Pinonko with the other crew. It took three days to get to our destination. Vandy says he was given no information about what the vessel was carrying or where it was sailing. So the bait ended up sailing for about three days before picking up more than 80 passengers on 9th of September 2009. When we got on board, the passengers were in the boat. I don't know exactly how many there were. We were told by the man who gave us this job to follow certain directions for one and a half days. Another one and a half days, we came to another island. We followed this direction for another day. He steered the boat for about six hours a day. He was told to travel in a southerly direction. By the middle of the next day, we saw an aircraft which was an Australian aircraft, as I was told. I was speechless. Eventually, the vessel was picked up near Browse Island, which is 180 kilometres northwest of the Kimberley coast of northwestern Australia. His boat had run into trouble. A distress call was made to the Australian Maritime Safety Authority and it was eventually intercepted by a naval vessel. By the time he saw the Australian plane circling overhead, the boat had less than a day's fuel left and this was all happening on the 12th of September 2009. When Vandy was asked by immigration authorities, why did you choose Australia as your destination? He replied, I did not choose Australia. I was asked to sail. I only found we were in Australian waters when the customs aircraft came. Vandy was also asked if he had any reasons for not wishing to return to his country of residence. I don't have any reasons not to want to go back to Indonesia. I want to go back to Indonesia. I want to be sent back home as soon as possible. But once Vandy is picked up on this boat, Does he tell anyone that he's a kid, that he's under 18? He says that he does, yes, and multiple times, in fact. Vandy has since said that when the arresting officers were on board the ship, he was asked how old he was. He told them that he was 17. He then says he was taken to Christmas Island. Again, he says he told officials there that he was from Bononco in Indonesia and was 17 years old, with a date of birth of 17 March 1992. Later, when the police came, he says he told them the exact same thing. I am 17 years old, he said. Mm. And are there rules for what should happen if the Australian Federal Police find a child on one of these boats? There was really clear policy within the Australian Federal Police of how to deal with juvenile people smugglers at the time. And they said that anyone under the age of 18 should be sent back to their home country. So in this case, Vandy should have been sent back to Indonesia. But we know that's not what happened to Vandy. What does happen to Vandy is that about a month later, he's taken to have an X-ray. On 15 October 2009, I was taken to hospital by police and an X-ray was taken off my arm. Vandy speaks about this experience in an affidavit made in December 2020. I was told by police the X-ray says how old I was. I did not know what an X-ray was then. This X-ray is what would decide the next few years of Vandy's life. The AFP would say it proved Vandy was an adult, but it was based on an inaccurate medical technique. And the AFP should have been aware of this at the time of Vandy's X-ray. 
Tell me about this technique, Chris. What is this inaccurate medical technique that you're talking about? So to really simplify this, there's something known as the GP atlas, which is used by medical practitioners to assess the skeletal development of children. So what they do is they they take an X-ray of a child's wrist, they compare it to the set of reference X-rays in the atlas, and they then determine how developed someone's skeleton is for their age. But usually you'd know the actual chronological age of the child you're assessing and you're sort of comparing their skeletal maturity to this set of standards. But what was happening here was that the method was used in a way that was sort of backwards where the atlas was being used to assess a child's age, their actual chronological age. And this is what happened to 17-year-old Vandy. I understand a report was prepared about my x-ray. A radiologist would look at the x-ray of Vandy's wrist and write an official report. I have now seen the x-ray and the report which is in my hospital records. That report said that the bones in Vandy's hands revealed skeletal maturity and, quote, it is a reasonable interpretation that Mr Vandy is older than 19 years of age. This is the report that the AFP used to say Vandy was an adult and to prosecute him as such. After the x-ray, the police took me to a police station. They said I was going to court. I went to court the next day. I had never been to court before. Do we know that the Australian Federal Police knew that this technique was unreliable at the time. It certainly had reasons to doubt how accurate it could be. So in 2002, so this is seven years before the arrest of Yandy, a remarkably similar case came before the courts. There was a dispute about the age of an Indonesian boy who'd arrived by boat. He told the AFP he was 15. The AFP relied on a wrist X-ray interpreted by the same doctor who did Vandy's X-ray to conclude the boy was likely to be over 18. But it's interesting, in this case, the doctor actually gave evidence and he conceded that the x-ray technique was, quote, not an exact science and that there was a, quote, possibility of error in conducting x-ray comparisons. And the court in that case eventually ruled that the boy was under 18. The AFP appealed that decision to a higher court, but their appeal was dismissed. The court didn't reject the medical evidence, but it said, given the uncertainty of the technique, it accepted the accused's own evidence about his age. So it sounds like, especially seeing as the AFP appealed this case, you know, they should have been aware after all this that this method of determining someone's age was not entirely accurate. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think it's fair to say that the AFP should definitely have known that there were question marks, serious question marks around this technique. And yet, seven years later, the AFP again relied on this wrist x-ray technique to allege Vandy was an adult. Is there any other evidence that the government or the Australian Federal Police was aware of the limitations of the GP atlas in determining age? So in June 2010, so that's a full eight months before Vandy was convicted, the Immigration Department provided a briefing to senior government ministers That briefing warned that wrist x-rays could have an error range of at least two years either way. Two years is a pretty wide margin of error. Yeah, especially when you're trying to prove that someone is 18 or above. Mm. So the department pointed 
the minister to the UK's official guidelines on this practice, and those guidelines are really unequivocal. They said that the UK considered it an inexact science with a margin of error that could sometimes be as much as five years either side. They warned that interpreting wrist X-rays was highly subjective. Different experts could interpret the same image in completely different ways. And I'm quoting from the briefing here, they say, the issue of whether chronological age can be determined from the estimate of bone age has been discussed at great length in the literature. The answer is that it cannot. Do we have any sense as to why the government would adopt this process then if it was unreliable and there was a lot of evidence out there that it was unreliable? So you have to remember the context in which all of this is happening. So we're talking about 2009, a time when there was a really quite highly charged atmosphere around border protection and quite significantly negative sentiments about supposed boat people and people smugglers. So we know there was a really strong motivation for the government under Prime Minister Kevin Rudd at the time to appear to look tough on the issue. This practice didn't escape scrutiny at the time. Catherine Branson, who was the Australian Human Rights Commissioner, published a scathing report in 2012. That report detailed Australia's treatment of underage asylum boat crews. Catherine told my colleague Ben Doherty that she thought at the time political pressure was being felt by government agencies responsible for investigating and prosecuting people smuggling offences. She said, I concluded that these agencies wanted to be seen to be bringing prosecutions and securing significant penalties. They wanted to be seen to be taking people smuggling seriously. They wanted to find some way to determine age. There was a high level of anxiety to find a biological marker that could tell you precisely how old a person was. Right, so despite the question mark over this technique, Vandy has his x-ray and that is interpreted in such a way that says he is over the age of 18. What happens next, Chris? So what happens next is a really crucial part of this story. And what we know now is that once police had this x-ray report, they changed the date of birth that Vandy had given them. So they took his date of birth They kept the day and the month, but they changed the year. And they did that so that his age matched the age estimate in the radiologist report. When they had this new date that said he was over the age of 18, they put it on sworn legal documents, which were used as the basis for his prosecution. Is this something that the police did regularly, just change the year that the boys had given them to fit this unreliable X-ray evidence? Our reporting has shown that the police have done this multiple times that we know of during the 2009 Stop the Boats period. And what we know is the dates of birth were changed. Some were changed so that the boys would appear to be 19 years of age and some were changed so they appeared to be older. So Vandy is eventually found guilty at trial. What happened to him next? Savandi was convicted and then on the 9th of February 2011, his sentencing hearing comes up. You can remain seated. You have each been convicted of one charge that on and between about 4 September 2009... This is an actor reading a transcript of the judge at his sentencing proceedings in the District Court of Western Australia. This sentencing hearing was actually for Vandy and another person who was on board the ship. They were being sentenced together. 
You each facilitated the bringing or coming to Australia of a group of five or more people to whom subsection 42 of the Migration Act 1958 applied. At the sentencing, the judge actually commented on Vandy's age. You, Vandy, are now or will be 19, I think, yes, 19 in March. You lived in Bononco at a subsistence level. You've had four years primary school education. You've never worked. You were to be paid 5 million rupiah to be a crew member. That was only a promise. It seems to me that that was a promise simply to, if I can say, suck you in to get you to go on this trip. Certainly, you've not been paid. But 5 million rupiah is a lot of money for someone in your position. And the temptation to accept that amount of income was too great. And hence, you went on with what you did. And what sentence was Vandy given? So at the time, the courts were really constrained in how they could sentence people for these types of offences. That's because the Howard government had introduced what's known as mandatory minimum sentencing for people smuggling offences. They did so to create a deterrence in their attempt to appear tough on borders. Without people like you acting as crew, then boats would not be able to come. In his sentencing remarks, the judge says that despite only playing a small role, Bandy was nevertheless instrumental in the people smuggling operation. You may not have been, or you were not the primary organisers, but you involved yourselves knowingly and your roles were pivotal to the success of the entry of the illegal migrants. So a strong deterrent is required. And he handed Vandy the mandatory minimum sentence. Five years imprisonment with three years non-parole. I also note that you're going to be imprisoned in Australia, away from your home country. Now that creates a hardship in itself, and that hardship is exponential in its effect over an increasing period of time. It's a hardship to you, but you've brought it upon yourselves. You'll be sentenced each to a term of five years imprisonment. So did Vandy serve his full five-year sentence? So Vandy is behind bars for about two years. I understand my mother gave information that was sent from Indonesia to the Attorney General's Department of Australia in 2012. Eventually, In 2012, his mother was able to send some documents from Indonesia to the Attorney General's Department of Australia that showed his real age. I was told I could go home to Indonesia because I was underage. He was told that he could go home, back to Indonesia, and he did. Chris, what happened when Vandy got back to Indonesia? In his affidavit, he talks about the difficult transition back to his old life. It was hard when I got back to Indonesia. I did not have a permanent job for a year. I then got a job as a fisherman for some time. I don't like thinking about being in the adult prisons in Australia. But despite being back in Indonesia, Vandy remained a convicted criminal back in Australia. I imagine that limits his rights somewhat, especially if he were ever to come to Australia. Is this something that that bothered him, that he wanted to change? Yeah, yeah. It was really something that he wanted to overturn. According to Colin Singer, Vandy's conviction weighed heavily on him, even after all these years. Vandy truly believed that he'd been wrongly and badly treated. In no way did he believe he was a willing people smuggler. 
He was unhappy about his arrest. He was unhappy being away from his family and kept out of touch with them by the Australian government. He was very aggrieved. Fandi is a quiet guy. He doesn't jump up and down. And he believed that there was nothing he could do. What could a poor fishing kid do against the might of Australia? So his conviction, I think, affected him probably more. He was a little bit older. He was more mature in thinking. And he had spent a fair amount of time trying to work out what had gone wrong and to this day doesn't understand. The effect on him has been grievous, as it has been on many of the kids. He is upset he lost his education and with the loss of his education, his chance for a better future for him and for his future family. The unfairness of it all continues to rankle him. And with Colin's help and the help of a team of lawyers from a firm based in Canberra named Ken Cushion Associates, Vandy, along with the five other boys who faced similar ordeals, would launch a fight to overturn their convictions, a fight that would take them through the Attorney General and all the way to the West Australian Supreme Court. The children were imprisoned in 2010. We are now in 2022, over 12 years and we still have a long way to go. That the kids have continued to take part as long as the proceedings have taken underwrites how badly they were affected and how badly they seek justice. Next, the fight to clear their names and the role of former Attorney General Christian Porter. So over a decade later, there's movement to try and overturn Vandy's conviction and the conviction of others. Tell me about who's involved. Who are the other boys in this case? So this appeal also included five other boys who went through really similar experiences as Vandy. They were all aged between 13 and 17 at the time of their arrest. They were all arrested in 2009 in Australian waters And every boy repeatedly stated that they were underage. They told the Navy, they told immigration, the police. But instead, each was taken for an X-ray and found to be over the age of 18. In five of the six cases, police relied on the same inaccurate X-ray technique as they used on Vandy to prosecute them as adults. In every case, the, the records that we've seen show that the AFP took the dates of birth that the kids had given them, they changed the year, kept the month and the date, and then put the new dates on sworn legal documents. Like Vandy, each boy was given a new birthday that would make them 19 years old, except for one, Muhammad Malang, who at court decided was 26. At court, the other five boys would plead guilty and all of them would be given the same sentence as Vandy. Five years prison with three years non-parole, although all of them would be released sooner than that when doubts began to creep in about their ages. Right, so how did this appeal come about? So in 2017, Colin Singer, who you heard earlier, started approaching lawyers who might be interested in taking on the boys' cases. Eventually, he spoke with a law firm, Ken Cushion Associates, and they agreed to help with the appeal. This was a really long and complicated process of gathering evidence and building the case. But to allow Ken Cush to go forward meant visiting villages from Sulawesi to Roti, Alor to Kupang, and of course Jakarta. We needed to get information. We needed to get formal 
written, signed approvals. We needed to get affidavits. The next step in their journey was to contact the Federal Attorney General, who was at the time Christian Porter. So they contacted uh, Christian Porter in 2020, seeking to have their convictions overturned. The six Indonesians sent a letter to Porter asking him to exercise his discretion under the royal prerogative of mercy and refer their cases to the WA Court of Appeal. What is this royal prerogative of mercy, Chris? The boys had a huge barrier in front of them, and that was that they were trying to bring their appeals at a very late stage, so more than a decade after their convictions. What that meant was that they needed a special way to get to the courts to bring their appeal. And one of the avenues open to them was to go to the Attorney General, present their cases and ask him to use his special powers to refer them for appeal to the WA courts. You kind of see ministers intervene and use their powers in lots of different circumstances and they're asking Porter to to do this. What was at the basis of that argument? So in the letter, their lawyers said know, that the convictions were a substantial miscarriage of justice. The letter described in really minute detail every instance in which the six Indonesians insisted they were children to Australian authorities and told Porter that the wrist x-rays were now widely discredited as a means of age determination. So if Porter had granted their request, it would have made their bid for justice much simpler. So they wouldn't have needed to convince a court to let them lodge an appeal well out of time. Because hmm. if they'd had that referral from Porter, um, they wouldn't have needed to make that argument. Porter refused all six applications. Why did he refuse this request? Well, that's one of the more interesting parts of this story. So Porter said that the request made by their lawyers was not a proper request for mercy, but even if it was, he would have refused it. And he said, this is on the basis that a court of appeal could not reasonably conclude that a miscarriage of justice had occurred and that the circumstances of his case do not warrant the exercise of my discretion to refer the matter. And that's a quote from Porter's letter in early July 2020 to the boys' lawyers. Do Porter's reasons for rejecting this stack up? Are they fair? I think Porter's position is interesting for three reasons. So firstly, he told the boys that essentially they didn't have any prospects of success. Now that's odd because there was a really similar case to theirs that took place in 2017, um, and that was lodged by a boy named Ali Yasmin, who was also a convicted people smuggler. He convinced the court back in 2017 that the wrist X-ray technique was unreliable and that he had been victim of a miscarriage of justice. So that was in 2017. That's years before these applications would come before Porter. And secondly, Porter was also being told by Commonwealth prosecutors that they had no objection to him allowing the six Indonesians to... Um, lodge their appeals and for him to make the referral. And thirdly, it's it's also worth noting that Porter did have some past history with this case. So back in 2010, Christian Porter was the State Attorney General and Corrections Minister for WA. And at that time, he received a complaint to his office alleging that Indonesian children were being held in his state's jails on people smuggling charges. So Porter didn't have any involvement in these boys' prosecutions um, at all, but there was a request made to him by the Indonesian Institute, which is a a peak body for Australian-Indonesian relations, and it complained that, quote, a number of inmates are below 18 years of age. Porter wrote back and said, 
there was no boys under the age of 18 in his jails and he relied on the wrist x-ray techniques as his reason for believing that there were no problems with age verification of the people smuggling offenders in his jail. Porter's letter back to these boys' lawyers does not mention in any way his prior involvement in this issue. Right, so not only is there some precedent for cases like this succeeding at court and some government advice given to Porter in favour of his intervention, but the fact that these kids were in jail had also been flagged with Porter years before and he didn't do anything about it. Is this a conflict of interest, this prior involvement of Porter's? So I sent questions to Christian Porter's office about this, asking effectively whether, given he had this prior link to the issue, he should have recused himself or disclosed his prior involvement to the boys' lawyers. He didn't respond to our request for comment. It's probably not entirely fair to say that there was a conflict of interest, but we did speak to retired New South Wales Supreme Court judge Anthony Wheelie about this, and he said Porter's earlier involvement in this issue complicated his decision to refuse the Indonesians a referral to the Court of Appeal. Right, so Porter denies these requests. What happens next? So despite Porter's refusal, the six Indonesians were eventually able to have their case heard by the WA Court of Appeal using another avenue. They successfully told the Court of Appeal that it should hear their appeals despite them being more than 10 years old. There was a brief hearing in November during which Commonwealth prosecutors offered no resistance or opposition to the boys' cases. And then there was a wait of about five months until the decision was handed down on Tuesday. So the day rolls around. Tell me about what happened with this court case in the end. When the judgment came down, it was relatively brief, but it did find that a substantial miscarriage of justice had occurred. The court said that the original prosecutions of the boys had relied heavily on the wrist x-rays as a means of proving that they were over the age of 18 years. And it said, quote, Since the appellants were convicted and sentenced, the determination of age based on wrist x-rays has been discredited. So essentially the court here is saying there was no reliable evidence when each of the boys were convicted and sentenced that they were over the age of 18. After that finding, the convictions were quashed and acquittals were entered in their place. How do Colin and the boys feel about this verdict? As you might expect, this was a big moment for everyone. I'm obviously delighted about the result. That another six convictions and sentences have been overturned is another step or two forward to resolving the children's situations. The boys' lawyer, Mark Barrow of Ken Cushion Associates, also gave a statement saying, quote, I can say there were systemic failures at every step for these children. In the end, the six acquittals stand as truth of the injustices. I am perhaps slightly disappointed that the court didn't take the opportunity to address the background to this situation. I had hoped at some point that someone would say, why is this happening and what can we do to prevent that happening again? But I see no references to that in the judgments. So hopefully, maybe sometime in the future we will. But yeah, overall, I'm very pleased with what we've achieved at this time. But there is sadly so much more to do. So this case is wrapped up. 
could this happen again? Do the Australian Federal Police still use this type of technology, the X-ray technology? This technique is no longer used by the AFP. In the statement, they've they've said that they couldn't comment on matters before the courts, but they were very firm in confirming that this uh, wrist X-ray comparison technique is is no longer used. So a lot of people were involved in imprisoning these boys for years as children. Will anyone face any consequences for that, Chris? Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens from here. So successive governments from both sides of politics have known about this, obviously, for quite a long time. But I think this case has brought new details into light that will put pressure on authorities to explain themselves. And Anthony Wheely, who we mentioned before, the retired New South Wales Supreme Court judge, he has looked at this and he said... There are serious questions for police to answer. He's calling for an independent inquiry into police actions. You know, this this appeal might have come to an end, but there's there's still other legal proceedings. There's a there's a civil case against the government that's been launched by a whole bunch of boys who are in a similar situation. But even though these boys have managed to clear their names and overturn their convictions, there are many more who haven't had that opportunity. There are people out there still fighting for justice, and there are also people out there just never got that chance to to ask for the courts to clear their names. That was Christopher Norse, a reporter at Guardian Australia. You can find all the pieces of the Indonesian Boys Australian Jails investigation at theguardian.com and we've linked to them on the full story page as well. A really important piece from this investigation that we didn't get to cover in this podcast is titled, I Want to Know Why He Died, Family Seeks Justice Over Australia's Jailing of Indonesian Child. It goes into the story of an Indonesian boy who was not involved in this case, but was also wrongly jailed as an adult in Western Australia when he was just 14. And that boy died shortly after he was deported back to Indonesia. It's a heartbreaking read, but worth checking out. Okay, that's it for today. This episode was produced by Ellen Leebeater, Joey Watson and Joe Koning, who also did the sound design and mixing. Additional mixing by Camilla Hannon. The executive producers of Full Story are Miles Matnioni, Gabrielle Jackson and me, Laura Murphy-Oates. Okay, catch you tomorrow.